This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If you like shopping on Amazon.com because you avoid paying sales tax, or at least you think you do, the party is over. Starting next month, Amazon will add sales tax to purchases made in Colorado. Consumers may not be thrilled, but it could mean more revenue for state and local governments. Greg Avery is covering the story for the Denver Business Journal. Greg, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Since when does a company get to decide if it collects taxes? I thought that was something mandated by government, you know? Well, it is, unless they don't have a presence in the state. And Amazon, being an online retailer to date, has not had a physical presence in Colorado. So it got to choose voluntarily whether or not it added sales tax to your purchases. All right. And how much will the tax be? That's a good question. The state charges a 2.9% sales tax Um, And local municipalities have varying sales taxes that they add on. What Amazon will be paying, it's not really saying. And it's not Amazon paying, I should say. It's adding on for what the consumers owe. Exactly. But presumably there might be some kind of algorithm based on what your zip code is or the address to which you're having the product sent that would help calculate the local sales taxes. Exactly. And catalog companies have done this for decades. Right. This is not impossible. And uh, Amazon is doing it in other states as well, correct? They have. Uh, Now, this whole notion that people who were buying on Amazon weren't necessarily paying sales tax, it's not that they didn't have to. It's just that they might not have known how. It wasn't a terribly convenient process, I guess. Right. It's not a well-known thing. But in theory, if you buy things online and you aren't charged sales tax in the course of that um – transaction, you're supposed to voluntarily submit what you owe to the state and local governments, though most people don't even know that they're obligated to do that. And if you uh, really felt that you had to do that and you knew that you had to do that, how would you do that exactly? That's a very good question. I don't actually even know. I've never done it myself. That may be a bad admission, but... You've just admitted on the radio you've been skirting sales taxes. (laughs) I'll say this. I've I've already done my taxes for the year. My friends have been giving me... uh, a hard time for having gotten them done so early. But one of the questions that I was asked uh, when the software realized I was in Colorado was, have you made online purchases in the last year? So presumably for some doing their taxes, there's the opportunity to fess up at the end of the year, apparently. Is there some sense of why Amazon uh, is starting to charge the tax now? Uh, They've obviously been working with Coloradans for many years. They have, and they've avoided paying sales taxes where they don't have to uh, for a long time. Amazon isn't saying why why now, um, but most observers think that it's because they're they're going to have a physical presence in the state somehow. They, um, they have been opening distribution centers to speed deliveries um, to various regions around the country in places like Texas and New York State, Ohio, and have started paying sales taxes in those places as they've opened distribution centers. And so there's a belief that maybe that's what they're up to here. Amazon isn't saying. Uh, last year, they purchased a Denver startup um, on the technology side of their business. And there was some curiosity whether having employees here would trigger a nexus that they would have to start charging sales tax. And it's it's a little unclear why, why exactly uh, they're choosing to do it now. But um, it, it's probably because they'll have a physical presence here. Presumably the promise of jobs. Uh, right. And the moment you have a sort of bricks and mortar presence, that sales tax obligation kicks in, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. There is um, some legal wrangling over this whole question of internet sales tax as well. This is winning its way through the courts, isn't it? 
It is. It, uh, several years ago, 2010, um, the state legislature tried to obligate online retailers who didn't have a physical presence in the state um, to report what consumers were in Colorado were buying okay. and never went into effect because there was a lawsuit triggered. It's gone up to the Supreme Court over matters of legal jurisdiction and um, oral arguments have been heard and it's uh, awaiting a verdict out of the Tenth Circuit's uh, Court of Appeals. And so that would presumably affect many other companies beyond Amazon online. It well it would if the if the law was then carried out and I'm not I'm not sure whether the state legislature would still see it through. There was a lot of debate even after it passed whether or not it should go into effect. Let's talk about what this might mean for Amazon's bottom line. So if people have turned to Amazon because they think it's a way they can skirt sales taxes, I suppose to a certain extent there is a, a playing field evening <laughs> with with bricks and mortar stores. Then that's yeah, that's long been a complaint, uh, not just of Amazon but of other online retailers that they they get a benefit of not adding sales taxes to their purchases that a mom and pop shop or a, a, you know Walmart or somebody in town would have to. And in adding taxes, there have been some studies just recently um, out of Ohio State. They did a study showing that people's purchases were in fact affected. People tended to purchase less um, after sales taxes went into effect, um, less from Amazon specifically and online um, shops. And you know, Amazon's not a small entity. It's one of the 10 biggest retailers in the world. It did $35 billion worth of merchandise sales in the U.S. alone last year. There's a lot of money at stake for state and local governments and um, a lot of extra spending that consumers will do when these taxes get applied. Right. And so the question will be what might the effect uh, be on coffers, local coffers and state coffers. And I suppose that has all kinds of implications at the state level for Tabor and, and to state revenue. It does. And I that the state um, – I don't know that it really knows what to expect. It's uh, tens of millions of dollars that – Consumers will be adding to state and local coffers, but how how that comes in um, and when and how they deal with it is is something they're going to have to sort out after. I suppose that one of the questions as well moving forward is: Will the evening of the tax playing field uh, still bear out that it's simpler to buy online? You know that the convenience factor of that winds up being as important for the consumer as the tax question. Yeah, and that's something Amazon has been seen to be. Um, capitalizing on is the uh, the speed and convenience of the way you can shop on Amazon is the reason why people do it. And they're leading into or edging into delivery by drones exactly. and all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> yes. If a drone comes by your house and drops it right on your porch, it's a whole different uh, ballgame. Greg, thanks for explaining this to us and, and making an admission on our airwaves. This yes. I, I may live to regret that. Greg Avery, reporter for the Denver Business Journal. Coming up, a change of heart for the town of Silverton after the Gold King mine disaster. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The town of Silverton looks just about ready for a super fund. This is a reversal for a community that has resisted the federal cleanup program for decades. The Gold King mine spill changed the conversation. 
Three million gallons of toxic drainage triggered disaster declarations in downstream communities like Durango, and it left many wondering why Silverton hadn't done more to clean up abandoned mines. Now town officials have drafted a letter to the governor asking that he request Superfund. They will put this before the public at a meeting Monday. Mark Esper has watched opinions shift on this. He is editor of the Silverton Standard, and he's on the phone with us from southwest Colorado. Mark, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, Gold King certainly grabbed the headlines, but a Superfund site, as I understand it, would likely cover a real cluster of leaky mines. Paint us a picture of, of that area for us, will you? Yeah, it is. In, it's a really complex system of mines above a ghost town of Gladstone, about eight miles north of Silverton. Um, among these are the, the Great Sunnyside Mine, which used to be a huge producer in Colorado, employed hundreds of people for decades here in Silverton. Um, the mines have, uh, that Sunnyside closed in 1991. Uh, the portal down there at the, at the base of Bonita Mountain was sealed but the water level inside the mines has been rising, and thus we had um, the, the blowout of the Gold King Mine, which is about 1,000 feet above the portal of the Sunnyside Mine that was eventually closed. So it's a complex site. There's basically four mine adits that are draining acid mine drainage chronically all year long, mm. um, and that's what the EPA was trying to address on August 5th when they had the accident up there. Have you been into the bowels of these mines? I'm just curious. I have not. Okay. No, like I say, most of them have been are sealed off, um, and it, it, very dangerous to wander into. Anyway, the four mines in question have all been sealed off. Yeah. What exactly would this letter to the governor say? Ask for? Um, the letter is. Uh, the, the town and the county board are both going to be taking up this matter next week. They're going to be asking um, for um, a, a national priority listing for these sites that will uh, allow the EPA and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment um, more authority to uh, design and implement um, a preferred solution to deal with this, this chronic uh, acid mine drainage. The town concerns have been limiting the site to just uh, that uh, the four mining adits. Make sure it's not named after Silverton or uh, San Juan County. There's a lot of concerns about the the um, uh, impact on the tourism industry. I see. Um, but basically, yeah, they're just going to ask for federal assistance to deal with this problem. Okay, so a national priority listing. Uh, I suppose this gets a bit bureaucratic, but how does that relate to Superfund? Well, Superfund is a law that was created in 1980, uh, and, um, and it established a tax on the chemical and petrochemical industries, and it created this huge pool of money to address large contamination sites all across the country. Um, that tax, however, expired in 2010. Now the so-called Superfund, um, the national priority sites, is those are funded by annual appropriations from Congress. As of now, I believe there's 18 uh, Superfund sites in Colorado, for instance. Some of those, uh, no real action has yet been taken. Um, so there's that one of the concerns is just because you get on the national priority list does not mean you're going to get immediate action. Although in this case, given the publicity and the outrage over the Gold King disaster, uh, we've been assured by federal officials that funding will be available. Ah. 
Why do you think uh, Silverton officials have changed their tune? Um, was it the high-profile nature of Gold King? This was a game changer, no doubt. One of the big, con- there were two big concerns about Superfund that this community had. One, it would kind of foreclose on the future of returning to mining, and the other one, the big one, the bad publicity, because we're totally reliant on tourism at this point, and the bad publicity was the big concern. But the August fifth blowout generated it kind of uh, blew that argument out of the water uh that game's over we had the bad publicity by not having superfund and by not addressing the problem that's only going to make the publicity worse so uh i think that town and county officials realize they have to address this and there's no other route available at this point you said that one fear historically in silverton when it comes to superfund is that it might foreclose on the possibility of future mining uh, does that re- does that remain true, and are there still hopes that mining might occur in the area? There's still hopes that mining may return in this area, although it's, like I say, it's 1991 since the Sunnyside shut down. Right. And, um, but, but a Superfund listing, if you listen to people in the mining industry, they make that argument that a Superfund site would uh, inhibit future mining development in this area. I can't vouch for whether that's accurate or not. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Mark Asper. He is the editor of the Silverton Standard. We are talking about changing attitudes in that community and in nearby Durango, frankly, when it comes to Superfund, the federal cleanup program. This is after the Gold King mine spill occurred. Uh you talked about you know tourism being a real concern and not wanting um, the Superfund name to be associated with a, a tourist name, uh, the, the name Silverton or perhaps the name Durango. Would you suggest a name for what the Superfund site would be? Well, um, I was going to, you know, years ago when they were first founding Silverton back in 1874, they were trying to figure out what to name the place. And um, that it turns out that Silverton has almost the exact same elevation of Quito, Ecuador. So I thought we could name it the Quito Superfund site. Oh, right. That's just my idea. I'm not sure how Quito might feel about that. Uh, on a more serious note, it was an EPA contractor that triggered the spill. And then, of course, the focus now is on Superfund, which is a federal program, and, and whether locals would even trust the federal government to fix a problem when... Uh, they, in part, triggered it in the first place. There's a lot of distrust about the EPA, and, especially, and this incident probably didn't help matters. However, uh, and, and the, um, both local officials were trying to find a way to fund some um, uh, remedial effort here without going to Superfund, but they just could not find any anyone to carry that water in Congress or anything. Ultimately, Superfund is the only program out there that can deal with the scope of this problem. There is Good Samaritan legislation talked about. This is a, a law that's well, a bill that was just introduced by Senator Bennett and Senator Gardner um, that would um, eliminate liability for parties that want to engage in mine cleanups. But here you're talking about uh, maybe a $50 million project, maybe more. You'd need a good Samaritan with a lot of money to take that on. And really, Superfund is really the only option at this point. But even if these four, this cluster of four mines were to be addressed by Superfund, it's really scratching the surface, isn't it, in terms of abandoned mines throughout Colorado, let alone that region? Not yet, just in this drainage alone. 
Um, there's an estimate that um, came out that those four draining mines that we're talking about contribute 57,000 pounds of zinc each year. That's not counting other metals like cadmium, lead, etc. Um, but that's uh, the, uh, but coming down the animus, there's about 241,000 pounds of zinc each year. Right. There's a lot of natural metals loading. The San Juan Mountains have been heavily mineralized. Um, but and and there's a big question is what is attainable for water quality given the natural mineralization, but clearly these draining mine adits have dramatically worsened the problem since uh, in the last ten years we've lost three out of four trout species in the upper animus. Clearly matters are getting worse, and this needs to be addressed. This is not going to be the the final answer. There are still a lot of other problem areas, but these four mines do. Uh, represent the biggest contributors right now that need to be dealt with. I, I just want to point out that there was a conspiracy theory going around that region that the EPA, um, you know, triggered this spill intentionally so that there could be a Superfund designation. And uh, there was also some talk that an op-ed in your paper predicted this spill. <laughs> Um, that was an, that was a, a really interesting coincidence. In the uh, well, back I've been covering this story for a long time, and I ran some story about how the EPA was planning to do some work up there uh, a couple weeks before the spill. And in the July thirty first edition, I got a letter to the editor from a retired geologist from New Mexico, who was complaining that the, that the that this was a problem and that the EPA maybe trying to make the problem worse just so that they can force Superfund upon the community. And uh, after, and then the, the, the Gold King spill happened August 5th, less than a week after that letter published. And you would not believe I had every conspiracy theory nut in the world calling up the Silverton Standard and, um, and trying to, make, trying to uh, um, point to this as indi- an indication that the EPA did this on purpose, and it was all a vast conspiracy to force uh, Superfund on us, whether we like it or not. Uh, but however, even, and, and yeah, it just went viral. Um, Fox News was calling me up, Breitbart News. It got pretty crazy. Has that died down to some extent? It has, yeah. Uh, I haven't heard much on that for a while. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you, Brian. Mark Esper, editor of the Silverton Standard. He talked to us about... Silverton's apparent change of heart when it comes to Superfund. And we should say that downstream in Durango, the council there passed a resolution Tuesday in support of a Superfund designation. Rain barrels top loud and clear today, our regular feedback segment. You had a lot to say about a proposal at the legislature to allow Coloradans to collect a limited amount of rainwater. It's currently illegal. On Facebook, Matthew Gehring of Denver wrote, in reference to the barrels, why do we allow Home Depot and Lowe's to sell them statewide when they're illegal? Sort of a conflict of interest there, one might think. And Deborah Randall says, hello, come on, Colorado, grr. This and gray water recycling would be so helpful. On the subject of water, we recently interviewed nature photographer John Fielder about his new book, Colorado's Yampa River, Free-Flowing and Wild. The words free-flowing threw Will Reynolds of Fort Collins. He emailed, quote, The presence of two large impoundments seems to argue against this. These are Stagecoach and Catamount Reservoirs on the Yampa above Steamboat Springs. 
we got back in touch with Fielder, who says the Yampa is holistically free-flowing, and pointed out that there aren't two but four reservoirs, all on the Bear River, which is a stem of the Yampa. But the amount of water that the Bear River, the main stem of the Yampa, contributes to the whole flow of the Yampa once it reaches Dinosaur National Monument is relatively small. So the Elk River, the Williams Fork of the Yampa, the Little Snake River contribute so much water compared to the Bear River that those four reservoirs and dams don't really affect the free-flowing nature of the river itself. He said the river peaks at 15,000 cubic feet per second and goes down to a few hundred cubic feet at the end of the summer. Just before the state legislature gaveled back into session, we spoke with two longtime lobbyists who told us their roles as advisors to lawmakers are more important than ever, partly because of term limits. Lobbyists have the long view, while lawmakers may not. That concerned Carl Duckstein of Greeley. He says via Facebook, we need term limits for lobbyists. Because of term limits for legislators, way too much power has devolved to these special interests. Listeners also responded to our recent conversation about the shortage of tradespeople in Colorado. These are so-called middle skills jobs that require more than a high school diploma, but not necessarily four years of college. Larry Watts of Westminster emailed this. My degree in engineering has opened a few doors for me, but it was fundamentally overrated and way overpriced. Colleges and universities get more and more expensive and are becoming little more than tech schools anyway. I very much regret that I was swayed by the popular idea in my generation that everyone had to have a college degree. Thanks for bringing the subject out in the open. As part of that trade story, I spoke to the head of a heating company in Frederick, Colorado, who lamented the lack of skilled labor. Listening was Rhiannon Durier of the Denver Area Labor Federation. She says the Federation partners with local trade unions to provide apprenticeship programs. They are offered to workers at a very low cost, around $500 a year. This helps ensure employers like the one you interviewed don't have to rely on an unskilled, untrained workforce. And finally, our interview about massive redevelopment coming to neighborhoods around the stock show prompted a call from George Walker. His father was a mail carrier in the Globeville neighborhood for decades. We all, his sons and daughters, used to always uh, say to Dad, why do you want to carry mail in Globeville? You know, all that air pollution, all that poverty, blah, blah, blah. Well, he's kind of like the person that just on the radio has his problems. He knew it had his problems, but he liked it. He liked the people. He liked the area. We like to hear from you. Head to CPRnews.org, click Contact at the top of the page, or you can comment at the bottom of individual story pages. We're on Facebook, CPR News, and Twitter, at Colorado Matters. Coming up, typewriters and the people who still buy and fix them. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of Denver's oldest video rental stores is now one of the city's last. Video One survived the rise and fall of mega chains like Blockbuster, and it has survived the age of online streaming. But as CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones explains, Video One may have to close its doors. The first thing you hear when you walk into Video One is a classic movie as it plays on a TV. Tonight, it's the 1966 Western, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Ian Anderson is the guy behind the counter. You guys enjoy? These will both be due back Thursday night. 
Anderson studied film, so chances are he knows some interesting things about that movie you want to rent. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is one of my all-time favorite it's espionage good. thrillers. Yeah, uh, based on a novel. The guy Victor Ward of Denver has come here for years. Tonight, from thousands of DVDs and Blu-rays, he picks Birdman. I chose to get it from here because I would rather spend my money here. In the TV section, Ward drags his finger across entire seasons of The Twilight Zone and Star Trek that he's rented from here. He says the thought of Video One shutting down troubles him. Oh man, it's so important that it just hurts my heart. It's our history. Jeff Hahn wants to save Video One. He's worked here since 2001. Then it was just another job, but it's turned into something much more. Hahn bought Video One seven years ago when the previous owner wanted out. I've spent most of my adult life working in here, and it was home to me. So I kind of felt that I would be the only person to really keep this going. That's meant some 70-hour work weeks and putting nearly $300,000 into the store to keep it afloat. Variety, he says, is what sets his store apart from competitors. We are the only place in this city that you can find the majority of what's in here. And we don't want to go away because that's valuable to us. But going away is a real possibility. Han says Video One is in the red. On top of fewer rentals, the store has seen a big decline in DVD sales. A lot of late fees also go unpaid. Rentrack is a Portland-based media research company that has tracked video rental stores since 2008. There were nearly 18,000 stores across the country at that time. Today, it estimates fewer than 5,000 still stand. Most are small or independent businesses like Video One. It's a very sad thing for me in a lot of ways how very slow everything can become, just from Netflix alone, really. Colorado has other movie rental stores, from Denver to Boulder to Durango. Colorado Springs, on the other hand, has none. That's according to commercial real estate broker John Egan. He once worked with the likes of Blockbuster to get prime locations. Egan says when he moved to Colorado Springs 20 years ago, corporate rental chains were everywhere. Now Redbox is sort of the phoenix from the ashes. You can often find rental kiosks like Redbox outside gas stations and grocery stores. Egan says convenience and cost are key here. That's because there isn't the high overhead that comes from having an actual building. So Egan suggests that independent rental store owners diversify. That tenant is going to have to find some way to do other things inside that business space to make ends meet. One example is in Fort Collins. There, the Village Vidiot has a board and card game area. It also serves Japanese food. So in Denver, Jeff Hahn has considered his options for Video One. We're at a point here where we are trying to figure out whether we need to just go out of business here in the next couple of months. But Hahn has an idea to become a nonprofit. That's what Seattle-based Scarecrow Video did two years ago, after the owners decided to get rid of their collection. Business manager Kate Barr says the move to a nonprofit led to a lot of donations and volunteers. And Scarecrow now has outreach programs that target kids and the elderly. We are no longer locked in the equation of videos equal sales or rentals. This is more about community engagement. Barr says getting grants for a new organization has been the biggest challenge. But she's optimistic that'll change as Scarecrow grows. Video One, how can I help you? Owner Jeff Hahn hopes Video One can serve the heart of its Denver neighborhood. So he's launched an effort to raise $50,000. He says that money will help pay for lawyers and application fees needed to become a nonprofit. I love doing what I'm doing, and there is a necessity for it because once it's gone, it's going to be gone forever.
Han hopes he can make this move to become a nonprofit before summer. That's the store's slowest time, and the time, Han says, he'd most likely have to shut the doors. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Corey's report got us thinking about other Coloradans whose business relies at least partly on aging technology. So we go from DVDs now to something older. This is the best thing that's happened to typing since electricity. Someday all typewriters will work like the IBM Selectric. But why wait? You'd think typewriters had gone the way of the dodo, but you can still find people who sell and repair them, like Lowell Plum. He works at Aero Office Products in Boulder, and uh, he says typewriters have made something of a comeback. Welcome to the program, Lowell. Thanks for having me today, Ryan. Good morning. I was surprised to hear that there is still demand for typewriters, and not necessarily from older people, but from some younger ones as well. Is that right? Yeah, what we're seeing is uh, the active typewriter market today are old manual vintage um, antique typewriters, and it's mainly teenagers and young adults that are fascinated with them. I think this is because they have grown up around computers and never were exposed to the typewriter. So they're, like I said, fascinated with them. And do they come in with their own typewriters for repair, or it's that they come to you looking to buy one? Yeah, we primarily do the service end of things. Occasionally, I'll have a, a used machine or two around. But, um, yeah, they are locating, finding these machines out on the Internet um, or garage sales, flea markets, thrift shops, that type of environment. This sounds like a hipster thing to me. I wonder if it's hipsters that are driving this. Uh, what businesses still use typewriters? Any you can think of? Oh, yeah, I think, um, you know, IBM, um, the Selectric, uh, then predecessor to that was the Electronic Wheel Writer. Um, you know, they made millions of these machines, and pretty much every business still has a typewriter. Um, I do still see a lot of um, IBM Selectrics and IBM Wheel Writers. Um, in fact, I had a call from a woman from Kansas just yesterday that's going to be bringing me a Wheel Writer for service. And what are they using them for if they have them in offices? I think um, the biggest thing is, um, obviously, we're talking um, established uh, businesses that, um, you know, there's an older workforce, and uh, it's just easier for a lot of these um, people to uh, type up a form. Um, I work with some title companies. I work with um, car dealers for uh, car title, automobile titles. Mm. Where you've got those like carbon copy kind of forms. Yeah, I really don't see that end of it. I think, um, yeah, the carbon copies are way gone, but uh, maybe NCRs or, yeah, it's a multi part form type things that they yeah. use still. So is it hard to get parts for typewriters? Do you buy parts off the used market or are they still being manufactured? No, there's very few parts being made. I mean, finding parts or typewriters can certainly be challenging. Um, more times than not, though, it's uh, cleaning, oiling, and adjusting related to uh, repair the machines. Uh, we have a lot of um, NOS, uh, new old stock um, typewriter parts here at Arrow. Um, you know, Arrow's been in business like 50 years. And we also have many donor machines, uh, parts machines that we can cannibalize or rob parts from to huh. keep the next one going. And then typewriter ribbons, if I remember back to the... The few days I used a typewriter as a kid, um, typewriter ribbons, you know, you need that, obviously, to keep the typewriter going. Are those still being made? 
Oh, yeah, they're readily available. We um, have here in stock um, spool ribbons, and, you know, there are um, many uh, sources out on the Internet for spool ribbons. Can you still buy a new typewriter? I, I suppose I could go onto Amazon to answer this question. but uh... um, The only um, typewriter manufacturer that I'm aware of that's making anything new is Brother International, and they make a portable electronic typewriter. I think it's probably like 149 I call them toy typewriters because they're pretty much all plastic, but... I see. As opposed to the metal ones, which were heavy enough to turn into weaponry if you wanted to. You sent, oh, yeah. You yeah. sent us a picture, I think we've posted it at cprnews.org, of a mercantile typewriter. I guess this right, one... That belongs to a collector I work with. Yeah. Why did you single this one out? Tell us about this machine. Now, this is a real uh, rare machine. Um, it's what they call a upstrike or a blind typer. Um, it's obviously a, a mechanical, a manual machine. Um, the type bars uh, strike the bottom of the platen or the bottom of the roller, so you cannot see what you just typed. Um, the the roller mechanism would just uh, easily flip back so you could take a look at what you just finished typing. And these were obviously very short-lived, yeah. uh, which makes them rare um, because of, you know, the design was horrible. You couldn't see what you typed. <laughs> But that was just part of the typewriter evolution. I guess so, right. And, of course, it started with those individual striking arms, and then it became... type bars. Type bars. Oh, right. Thank you for teaching me the lingo. And then it became that spinning wheel with letters on it. I remember my mom had that typewriter. Right. That would be the newer electronic type machines, um, daisy wheel or print wheel. A daisy wheel. I love that word. Uh, Any other remarkable typewriters uh, come through your shop? Well, like I said, I work with a collector, and her collection is approaching 300 machines. Um, she um, has, um, obviously, some unique machines. She collects a lot of European typewriters. Um, one she has um, was a German Nazi SS party typewriter. Oh, my. That she acquired this machine out of California. I don't think the individual really knew what, she, what they had, but because um, most of these machines... Um, you know, if they worked worked their way back into this country, they would have been GI souvenirs um, after World War II. Um, but if the typewriter would have been, uh, you know, still used after the end of World War II, um, you know, that uh, SS party um, symbols and key uh, would have all been uh, destroyed or removed from the machine. For so it makes this machine real rare. Understandable reasons. Law, thanks so much for sharing this with us. It seems that typewriters may still have a life in them. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. Lowell Plum. He repairs typewriters, among other things, at Aero Office Products in Boulder. Coming up next, a short story writer finds success a bit later in life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the dead of winter, a character named Anna opens her front door to see her brother standing there, holding a poinsettia. He's wearing camouflage, and she realizes he's joined the military. Anna slams the door in his face. 
I just closed the door and sent my own brother away from Christmas dinner, sent him out into a snowstorm with his frozen poinsettia in his frozen hands, 12 hours before he shipped back to the kill zone. Her brother later dies in Afghanistan. Anna's deep regret is at the heart of a short story called Night in Erg Chebby. That's also the title of the new collection from Boulder writer Edward Hamlin. This is his first book, and it won last year's prestigious Iowa Short Fiction Award. Edward, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Why does Anna send her brother away on Christmas? Well, Anna has a lot of conflict about uh, the war. Uh, He's going back to Afghanistan. And uh, on the political level, she's against the war. She's quite upset about that and feels strongly about that. On a private level, she's worried about her brother, who's a soldier. And uh, she would like to make sure that he's okay. But when push comes to shove and he shows up for dinner and he's wearing camouflage fatigues, it triggers her to um, to react politically. Uh, and the problem for her is that then that debate that she's having in her own mind and to some degree with her brother is stopped cold because he dies. He's killed in Afghanistan and she can't resolve it. She can't continue the discussion. How interesting it is to sort the political and the personal when mm-hmm. you have strong views on something. Yeah, Our- I think we all do. I mean, that's the world we're living in right now, right? We're we're all somewhat citizens of the world. We're all plugged into the internet. We're living through these uh, difficult times. So both dimensions are in play. Her story is told through flashbacks while she has tried to escape her grief in some ways, uh, vacationing in the sand dunes of Morocco, a place called Erg Chebi, which lends itself to the name of this story and of this collection. Why is it set there? Well, I didn't want her to actually be where he died um, for the obvious practical reasons of a a civilian not being able to go into the war zone easily. But I did want her to be in that part of the world. Um, I wanted her to be in a place that was reminiscent enough of where her brother died that it would trigger something for her. And uh, her husband, some time after uh, her brother's death, decide she needs a vacation uh, to, uh, you know, help process what's happened, but really just to get away from her life and her grief. And he takes her to Morocco thinking it would be such a change of life, change of pace, uh, change of venue that it would free her to, to deal with her grief. But in fact, the opposite happens. Yeah, the sand is perhaps reminiscent of Afghanistan, the the, mm-hmm. the barrenness. And she's surrounded by men with guns who are yep. there to protect her. So that probably doesn't help any in the flashback sense. Have you ever been to this place, Erg Chebi, these, these sand dunes in Morocco? I have not. And actually, uh, you know, I have to say part of the story for me is about the difficulty of being a tourist anymore in the Middle East. You know, I don't think we can um, approach the Middle East neutrally anymore. We're not in that place where you could just go to Egypt and see the pyramids and come home and really never think about that environment, what was going on locally, or Morocco even. So uh, my wife and I actually were planning a trip uh, to Morocco, and then the Arab Spring happened. And uh, we decided that wasn't the best time to be tourists, so we didn't go, and we haven't been. How do you write convincingly about a place you've never been? And do you have in your mind the the reader who's been there and is going to Mm -hmm. challenge you in your descriptions? Well, on the latter point, for sure. I mean, I don't want to get it wrong. 
Um, I love doing the research. I'm, uh, you know, a bit of a geek <laughs> on the <laughs> on the research front. So this story was actually a lot of fun to research because we had planned to go there. We actually had some travel books. We'd already bought travel books, and uh, so I had a lot of uh, reference points there, including um, photos. I'm very much of a visual writer. So I'm pretty inspired by photos. Would you write with a photo right in right in front of you? I do sometimes. Yep. And that uh, that story also called details from things like people's trip advisor reports on their trips to Morocco. <laughs> there's a there's a great little. I mean, I think it's great. There's a great little detail in the story about this American couple going into this Bedouin tent, you know, on one of these overnight trips into the desert, kind of slightly hokey <laughs> excursion, and they see these you know, Western-style mattresses still wrapped in plastic. And they think, gosh, you know, it could be like a Sears. These could be Sears mattresses from some warehouse in Ohio. And that detail was actually from a TripAdvisor review. It's so fascinating because, you know, like a photo's guide would give you um, general pictures and senses Mm -hmm. of things. But TripAdvisor is so specific to people's experiences. It's great fodder for writers. That's right. Huh. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the the Boulder author Edward Hamlin about his new collection of short stories, Night in Erg Chebby, the winner of the Iowa Short Fiction Award this year. Not Yet is a story about a destructive wildfire. And in the acknowledgments, you think, quote, the firefighters who kept hammering at the 2010 Four Mile Canyon fire, though they knew their own homes might be in harm's way. How did real-life events shape this particular story? Well, we live actually quite close to Four Mile Canyon. We're just a couple of canyons north. And we were close enough that we had, uh, you know, white ash floating out of the sky onto our house. We uh, saw the plume as soon as I started hearing the, you know, the incredible number of emergency responders, sirens. I climbed up on the roof and I saw this, you know, phenomenal plume of smoke. Uh, the house was full of smoke for almost a week. We barely slept. So it was a very personal experience, though. We fortunately were not directly threatened by it. We didn't know that for about a week. No one knew which way that fire was going to turn. And uh, so, you know, coming out of <clears throat> that experience of that horrible week, I certainly knew that I had the raw material for a story. There were so many stories <laughs> embedded in it. But I didn't have a character. I didn't know who th- whose story it would be. And it wasn't until the forensics started being made public, the investigation into what caused that fire, that I began to, um, I guess, speculatively uh, empathize with whoever had started that fire. And the character that I created was not the character in real life that in, that inspired him. He was uh, actually, I think the conclusion was that the person whose fire pit bonfire started the fire was actually quite responsible, had done everything he should have done to put that fire out, but fire is tricky. And so to imagine what it would be like if you had started a deadly wildfire, the, the character in this story is named Walker. And boy, that's not the only heartache that he has to deal with. Long before the fire starts, uh, he loses his wife, Maggie, to a rare disease. And then you imagine that he starts this fire and that someone that that he could grow to love is killed in the fire. Mm -hmm. 
Is there a sadistic quality to being a writer and putting your characters through all this <laughs> heartache, Edward Hamlin? Well, that's a loaded question. Isn't it? <clears throat> I don't feel so. I mean, you know, some of the stories are pretty dark, but they're not about the darkness. I mean, we live in a very dark time. You know, we're talking a few weeks after the Paris attacks. We're talking, what, 10 days after Colorado Springs, a few days after San Bernardino. It's a pretty dark moment. And at the same time, I'm not interested in a, in a journalistic way in reporting the details of those things. I want to get them right, the framework right. But I'm interested in the people and those stories. And, you know, the people could respond in various ways to those dark things. They could run away. They could lean in. You know, they could determine that there is a way through it. And I'd like to think that a lot of my characters are taking the latter path and are perhaps being transformed or learning about themselves and doing that. Or leaning into the pain mm -hmm. and often the violence. Uh, let's have you read some of your writing. Burning and smoke come to mind when I think of wildfire, but uh, this particular story uh, based on the, the Four Mile Canyon fire is full of explosions. Mm -hmm. um, so re read this excerpt for us. It's the first sign of fire in the story. Okay. Deep in the night, Walker was awakened by the sound of an explosion. He stumbled through the dark to the bedroom window and was alarmed to see a tall pine at the edge of the yard engulfed in flames. It was a tree he loved very much, for it was the tree under which Maggie had sat reading summer after summer, an iced tea on the flat armrest of the chair, and a bowl of fruit balanced in the grass. She'd read all of Proust there one year, serious-faced but occasionally laughing with delight. Another summer she'd marched through Churchill's history of the war, inevitably falling asleep in the late afternoon sun, the book spread-eagled below her breasts. But now Maggie's beloved tree was in flames. As Walker watched in confusion, the tree next to it exploded with a smashing crack, flaring up like a struck match. He had no idea that a tree could explode. Suddenly, the yard seemed a minefield. Did you know trees could explode? Uh, actually, I, I don't remember exactly when I found that out. But I, uh, because of where I live, I, I know a fair number of volunteer firefighters. And in doing the research, uh, I did learn that fact. Yeah. It's such a visual. And you, mm -hmm. you compare it to, the, to a minefield there. Are short stories just unrealized novels? Or are they exactly the length that they should be? <laughs> Some short stories want to be novels. Actually, the, the last uh, novel that I completed was based on the first story in the collection, Indigena, um, which had a flashback, a brief flashback uh, to Haiti. And I realized that that flashback wanted to be a lot more. I wanted to explore that more deeply. So that can certainly happen. On the other side, I think short stories give you the opportunity to create something that is as close to perfect as possible. You can really fret over and polish every single word, uh, which in a novel is pretty tough. We have posted to cprnews.org the first story in the collection. You can read it in full at the website. Um, you just turned 56. Mm -hmm. This is your first book. Mm -hmm. And you described yourself to me as a late bloomer at one point in our early conversations. Are you happy that you bloomed or disappointed that it came so late? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I know the answer to that yet. Let me bloom a little more and we'll find out. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. The new collection of short stories from Boulder author Edward Hamlin is called Night in Urgchebi. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our producers include Michael Dayuana, Andrea Dukakis, Nathan Heffel, Kareem Maddox, and Stephanie Wolf. Special thanks today to Sam Brash. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio News.